Uh, back when I was in youth group, I invited a friend along to church. Uh, she came once, and she came again. And she started coming regularly to church and to youth group. She learnt the basics of the Christian faith, and to my great joy, she expressed a, a desire to follow Christ. Uh, I was so excited to see my friend become a Christian. Sadly, though, less than a year later, she stopped coming to church. She stopped coming to youth group, and when I asked her about it, I can still remember what she said. I asked God for help, and when I really needed him to show up, he didn't come through for me. So I'm done. God hadn't delivered for her, so she had given up on God. She decided that the story was over. There was nothing worth waiting for, nothing that God could do that would make sense of what she'd been through. I'm still sad when I think about the situation. I reflect on things that I and and maybe others could have done differently to better reflect God's grace to her. Uh, We haven't been in touch for a long time, but sometimes I still wonder where she's at with God, what, what hope to have for her. I'm concerned for her. Uh, It also unsettles my faith as well. If knowing Jesus is as good as I think it is and as good as the scriptures show it to be, how could someone experience that and then choose to walk away? I'm sure I'm not the only one. I reckon almost all of us would know someone, maybe a, a family member or a friend, someone close who used to follow Christ But now we see little evidence of it and and we wonder what to make of it. Maybe you've even had a season like this in your own life. There are also well-known Christian identities. You might know who've publicly stepped back from their faith in Christ as they uh, deconstruct the beliefs they were raised with. We need to think about this as Christians, uh, both out of love for our friends and family who are questioning or doubting their faith in Christ. We also need to think about it for ourselves. It raises questions about how we will persevere in trusting Christ. If you're here today and you're sceptical about Christianity, you're you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, we're so glad you're with us. Uh, Maybe you're here because you're intrigued or or you want to know more or your friends invited you along to church. This might seem at at first glance like a bit of an obscure topic for you, but actually it's a really important one. Because if you are going to think about becoming a Christian, it's far more than a one-time decision. Following Jesus is a lifelong commitment. And Jesus encourages potential followers to count the cost before we commit. There's great joy in knowing Christ, Uh, also great cost. He wants us to go in with our eyes open. So today's topic is all about how we go on and persevere and endure in Christian faith. Because there are lots of reasons that we might choose to give it up. Sometimes one of these reasons hits you like a big wave in the surf and just knocks you down. That maybe it's that many of our friends and colleagues not only doubt the truth of our faith, but doubt the goodness of our faith. And in many cases might prefer that Christianity was consigned to the rubbish bin of history. 
But it's not just these obvious challenges that we see, the, the big waves that hit us. There are also distractions, endless entertainment options, all sorts of sports and other experiences competing not only for our time but ultimately for our hearts as well. And these distractions, if we're not careful, can gradually lead us away, almost without us noticing. Instead of being like a wave that hits you full on, it's more like the tide or the current that just gradually drifts you away, almost without noticing. So Christians, we cannot take our faith for granted. Or simply presume that because I made a decision to follow Christ once when I was young, that now I can just cruise on autopilot. It's a difficult reality. But almost always through history, Christians have had to hang tough and hold fast to our faith. And that was certainly true in the ancient world. The first recipients of this letter to the Hebrews that we've been reading through over the last six or seven weeks, they faced public insults and persecution for their faith, confiscation of their property, perhaps even jail, we read about in chapter 10. That seems very distant for most of us, but it's not actually uncommon in some other parts of the world. Uh, Even in India in recent months, I've been hearing that violence has grown against Christians there and the police are very reluctant to intervene and, and protect Christians. Christian faith cannot be taken for granted wherever you are or whenever you live. So let's have a look at our passage. Let's see what some of the dangers are first. And then what hope and confidence we can have to help us persevere despite these dangers. So firstly, in in chapter 5, verse 11 to 14, we see the problem of immaturity. This is the first risk to enduring and persevering. Verse 11 says, We have much to say about this, but it's hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand bit brutal, isn't it? (laughs) Very pastoral tone there from our author to the Hebrews. (laughs) But a friend tells a friend the truth. This author wants these Hebrew Christians to know the danger that they're in. At the end of last week's passage, we got to chapter 5, verse 10. You might remember Charlie was preaching. It said, And Jesus was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The author uh, wants to go on and and say more about this and we'll get back to Melchizedek uh, by the end of today's passage ready for a deep dive next week but uh, Charlie passed up the the opportunity last week to wrestle with Melchizedek Uh, and as much as I'd love to explore this kind of shadowy and uncertain figure with you I think it's only right that I leave it for the vicar next week Uh, so we'll let John answer all the, the tricky questions about Melchizedek next week. So verse 11, the author wants to talk more about how Jesus is a high priest and a king over God's people who brings us into closest possible fellowship with God. But before we get there, we see the problem of immaturity. These Hebrew Christians are sluggish, uh, reluctant to even try to understand this more in-depth teaching. How can you grow as a Christian if you don't even try to understand God and his word better? If you're not paying attention and making an effort to listen to God and see how the Bible applies to your life. How can you grow? How can you learn? 
Our daughter Penny is now 10 months old. Uh, She started eating solid food a a few months ago, but we're still very careful about what we give her. Uh, No nuts, we don't want her choking. And she still has lots of milk as well. This is totally good and fine for a 10-month-old, right? But if she's still drinking mum's milk when she's 15, we're going to have some serious concerns, aren't we? It's exactly the same here in this passage. That's the the illustration being used. There's nothing wrong with being young in faith as a Christian. There's nothing wrong with needing spiritual milk, which stands for the foundational teachings about Jesus. But it is a problem if you never go deeper. It is a problem if we don't engage our brains and make the most of the opportunities that we have to study God's word, to learn more about him, As verse 12 puts it, to learn to teach others about Jesus as well. Because you don't need to be an expert to teach others. You just need to be willing to learn from God's word. Willing to pass on what you're learning to others and to encourage them in their faith. That's what being a small group leader is all about. That's what being a kids or youth leader is all about. That's what my job is all about. Being a leader and a teacher is not about knowing everything. It's being an active learner who's willing to take some initiative and to encourage other learners from God's word. On the other hand, if we rest on our laurels, expecting others to keep pouring out milk for us, and we don't take responsibility and seek to grow ourselves in our relationship with God, it's like taking him for granted. And that way lies disaster. So chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity. But hang on just a sec. Before we move beyond them, what are these elementary teachings? If we're going to build further for maturity, what is the strong foundation we're going to build on? We need a strong foundation. Verse 1 mentions repentance from acts that lead to death and faith in God. This is all about how you become a Christian and how you go on in the Christian life. You repent from sin. That means you turn away from actions and attitudes and thoughts that displease God and therefore lead to death. And instead you trust in God. You put your faith and your hope in him instead of living for ourselves or for something else that we value. We live for God first and foremost. We depend on him. We trust him above all else. That's what becoming a Christian involves. And it's what being a Christian involves. Day after day, turning from sin, trusting more deeply in God. Other foundations are in verse 2. Instruction about cleansing rites and laying on of hands. This could be about uh, baptism, possibly, or it could have been teaching that they needed uh, about Jewish cleansing rites, having come from a Hebrew-Jewish background, uh, which are perhaps less relevant for us who don't come from a tradition with lots of kind of washing rituals. Laying on of hands, a sign of blessing, a way of praying for others, particularly associated with the gift of God's spirit who comes and dwells in us uh, when we repent of sin and come to trust in God. 
And then it says the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. These are not optional extras for Christian faith. They're foundational. Jesus himself rose from the dead. That's the the central Christian claim. And he said that he will return and that all will rise to face judgment. Lots of religions share this belief, right, that will be held accountable by a creator who will ensure ultimate justice through final judgment. But unique to Christianity is the conviction that the only way to receive God's approval at that final judgment on that day is not to do lots of good things so that it outweighs your sins. That's not the Christian hope. Christianity alone offers the hope that Christ himself has won your approval. He has passed the test and by trusting in him, you receive the approval that is his. His righteousness is is the language the Bible uses. And all your sins are wiped away through his death on the cross. And so eternal judgment is not something to be feared for Christians. Because we can be confident, not that we have done enough, but that Christ has done enough for us and we depend on him. This is the foundational Christian hope. Not that God will not judge, but that God will judge. He will ensure justice and we will receive mercy because of Christ's death for us. Well, these are some of the foundational truths, important truths, but not the sum total of everything that God has spoken in the Bible. His word has many more riches for us as well. We need to have these strong foundations. We need also to keep growing for maturity. Because if we don't, there's a great peril that awaits, the the peril of falling away. Verse 4 describes it in the starkest of terms. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age and who've fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. This is a scary warning. Complacency and giving up on Jesus leads to disaster. As you sit with this, I I want to recognise that it can leave us very uncertain. Because all of a sudden, my, my salvation, my relationship with God can feel very insecure. Especially if you've been taught, like me, and and rightly, I think, that Jesus will not lose anyone who is his. That God will glorify all those who he calls to Christ and justifies in Christ. How do we square that idea that God guarantees our salvation with this warning about falling away from salvation? Some say that maybe it's talking about people who are never really Christians. Maybe that's possible, 
but it doesn't really sound like it to me. They share in the Holy Spirit. They've experienced God's goodness and power. And yet they've chosen to reject it. They've walked away from all these blessings of God, all his generosity to them, and now it seems there's no hope for them. They are ridiculing and shaming Christ, who is their only hope of salvation. So how do I think now about my friend who's walked away? Well, I don't know what's happening in her heart. Uh, if I had the opportunity, I would still want to encourage her to turn, to return and turn to Christ. I don't know whether she has truly fallen away. And I'm not going to know until that fateful final day when God's judgment is revealed. And actually, it's not my job in the here and now to, to prejudge that, to, to treat anybody as beyond hope of God's mercy. The illustration in verse 7 and 8 shows us why this warning is here. It says, Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. God blesses us as his people, as Christians. He sends his rain. He speaks his word to us with the reasonable expectation that our lives will bear fruit. That sin will be put to, get, put to death. That we will grow more like Jesus. That we will serve others in love and good deeds. That we will share the good news of Christ with others. If you're a skeptic today, it's worth knowing that when God calls you, he, he's calling you to a fruitful life. Fruitful for you, yes, but fruitful for the benefit of others and ultimately fruitful towards God and his kingdom. And if you're a Christian today, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, take a moment to reflect on how you're going. What evidence is there that God's word is bearing fruit in your life? What sin is God convicting you of? Where do you express Christ-like love for others? When did you last share God's word with someone? You might want to pray after the service about this. You might want to come and chat to me or to Ali. And we'd love to encourage you in this because God's word warns us about the peril of falling away and the eternal suffering that that leads to. The warning here is for us, for all who call ourselves Christians. It's not for people out there. And yet this passage offers us genuine hope as well. Verse 9 to 12 gives us some signs of hope. Listen to what our author says. Now, even about these slow Hebrew Christians who are not even trying to understand. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. 
Even amongst these Hebrew Christians, the author sees signs of hope. He knows that God sees them too. Especially their love for other believers and the help that they're offering and continuing to offer. And as I look around St. Jude's in Parkville, I see your genuine desire to listen to God's word. Uh, I see your uh, desire to work for good in God's world. I see your love for our church family. Uh, I see how many of you serve faithfully and, and give generously of your time and money and expertise. And I too am confident of better things, things that have to do with salvation. I haven't shared this warning with you today because I think you're producing thorns and thistles. I share it with you because all scripture is God-breathed and useful for training and rebuking and encouraging. And perhaps there are some of us that need to hear this warning for where we are now. For others, let it be an encouragement to keep persevering. As verse 11 says, we want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. No one likes a hope that disappoints. Uh, As a St Kilda fan, I can tell you all about that. No, we want our hope to be fully realised. And we can have confidence in this hope. Not only because we see signs of hope in each other's lives, but more profoundly because our hope has an anchor. The anchor of hope in verse 13 to 20. I'm not sure if you've ever spent a night on a yacht Uh, There's a guy, Ian, at the morning congregation who was telling me about sailing from Queensland down to Sydney. I think they kept going through the night, which doesn't really work for my illustration. But normally, I presume, when you're sailing and it gets dark, you want to stop and have a rest, right? And So you need to make sure that you've got a good anchor and it's got a really good, firm hold and it's not going to shift. You're still going to feel the tide and the current and the waves... You might be washed back and forth a little, but you're not going to drift off. You're going to stay safe and secure where you are as long as your anchor holds fast. As Christians, and in fact as as people, I would say, we need an anchor. When the going gets tough, what keeps you steady? doesn't mean you're not going to feel the waves or the tide. But they're not going to overcome you, not going to overwhelm you, not going to take you off somewhere totally different. When you feel the pressures to give up on your faith, when all around you are questioning and challenging or deconstructing or giving up on Jesus, where is your anchor? What will hold you firm? We need something utterly dependable and reliable. We need a promise from God himself, the the very source of truth. What could be more sure than that? His solemn oath can be depended on. He has given you his word. Christ, his son, is dependable. 
He has sworn it, our passage says, not because if God didn't swear, he'd be lying. God doesn't lie. But in verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We're like refugees. We fled to take hold of this hope, this anchor. We're staking everything that he is dependable, that he will come through. And he wants to encourage us to help us hold firm, to assure us that he's not lying to us. And we can take confidence, friends. Not only because God has said so, but also because Jesus has gone before us. He's entered the very presence of God where we long to be, where all our hopes are fully realised. If you're finding it tough to persevere and you're tempted to give up, or, or perhaps tempted just to kind of cruise in your faith, remember what he endured. Remember how he persevered for you. Remember the suffering that he faced and overcame. How he set his face towards Jerusalem for you and even endured the cross to win grace and mercy for you. He has gone before us, not only through suffering, but also into glory into the very throne room of God, behind the curtain, as it were. And, what is more, we are tied to him. Our anchor is in the very presence of God. It, it cannot be moved. This is our hope. We are tied to Christ. So, Friends, push on. Don't give up. Hold firm to your anchor amidst whatever currents or tides or waves might buffet you. Because your anchor is the Lord Jesus himself. And he will never let you go. Now, Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for giving us such a wonderful anchor. Our great hope, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he holds firm. He's gone before us. Help us to push on where he has led to grow in maturity, to bear good fruit. To know more of you and your goodness for us as we wait to see our hope fully realised. Amen.